Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you had uh, enough to eat. We've got plenty more, so a little bit more after. It was delicious. We're going to get into Numbers chapter 10 today. Um, let you know, uh, DeMontes, I remember he passed away last week. Uh, he had been battling cancer, no man, for a long time. And uh, I went after this session over to the hospital as kind of at the very, very end and his family was there and uh, just sat and <clears throat> held his hand and prayed with him. He, by that time, wasn't conscious. And so just hoped that he heard or I said, well, if you can't hear me, God can at least tell you what I'm saying and show you the real thing. Uh, but just sat and read with him some passages about the resurrection and new creation. And I said to him um, in his ear, I said, you're going you're gonna to experience it first, but the next time we meet again together, it's going to be at the banquet of the king. And so that's the hope that we as believers look forward to, even though death, when we see it, it is an enemy. It is an evil. It should never be accepted as just part of God's plan. It's not. It's the antithesis of God's plan. So every time we go to a funeral, every time we pass a graveyard, every time we see a headstone or a cremation urn or whatever it is, we're seeing a reminder that it's not the way it's supposed to be. And that Jesus walked through that shadow, came out the other side, and promised those of us who walk with him that we will too one day. And so whether we meet him after death or whether we meet him when he returns, the goal is the same. We'll meet him, we'll share together. And everywhere in scripture, I, I talked about this with my friend this weekend. I was down in Bermuda at a church, Ebenezer Methodist Church brought me in to teach a conference down there. And one of the pastor, the pastor there, my friend Cyril is their pastor, and then another pastor from another church on the island, we were having lunch. And I was telling them about Ruth's, about you guys and this study, and, and they were asking, just talking about it and how we do this. And I told them, look everywhere in scripture, you're going to see people eating together. God's people eating together. Everywhere. From beginning to end. And, and it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that the primary means that we've been studying for two years now, straight, three years, since if we count Exodus, that... God's entire way of relating to his people is through a shared meal. That's what the sacrificial system is. The tabernacle was God's, yes, it was the mini Mount Sinai, but it was also the butcher. It was where the people got their meat. And it was where the people ate their meals together when they brought their sacrifices. And so worship and eating have always been connected. Even in pagan temples around the world throughout history, people would bring food offerings and have a token meal with the gods. Uh, even today in India you go and they'll bring a little food offering or they're forcing milk on the little idol of whichever god it is in that temple. So there's something special and sacred about sharing a meal together, not just eating food together, but sharing a meal together. And so when Jesus talks about the end, the goal, where it's headed, the consummation of the kingdom, how we got from rooted, earthy, shared meals and banquets to ideas of floating around on clouds with harps, I'll never know. But that couldn't be further from the truth. When Jesus talks, when the prophets talk, when all of them talk about, this, this is the passage 
I wasn't, I'll share this because uh, <clears throat> we have time, because today's passage is a little short. So this is the, let's see if I can find it. This is the passage I read in De Montes' ear uh, as I was, he was, literally as he was passing away, is Isaiah 25. God says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. We don't have the wine. We do have the best of meats here. <laughs> On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Isn't that cool? God's description of how he will destroy death is by throwing a banquet. Throwing a banquet for all nations and all peoples. So what we're doing every week here at Ruth's is a little foretaste of what we get to look forward to when we meet again for that banquet. And I, I, that's just something that, again, it gets lost in churches where you don't share meals together, or if you do, it's a potluck or family nights up or something, and you just kind of eat and then go home. But there's something very sacred. You remember communion used to be a meal. In the early church, communion was called a love feast, and they would actually eat a meal. It wasn't a cracker and a little shot of grape juice. Uh, it was actually a meal. So much so that Paul had to tell them, hey, share your food. There are people that are hungry, and they're coming, and they need to be able to eat. So don't just, you know, anyway, whole other sermon, whole other lesson. But it was just, that came to my mind uh, as I was thinking about this past week since we met last week and what all happened. So, getting back to Numbers chapter 10, God has prepared his people. They are setting out from Mount Sinai. They've been there around 13 months, give or take, maybe close to 14 months. They, they celebrated they, the original Passover in Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt. After about two months, he brought them to Mount Sinai to travel. Then from there, he, they camped from Mount Sinai, and all of the stuff we read in Exodus and all of Leviticus and everything up till now in Numbers happened then during that one year when they were camped around Mount Sinai. He gave them the tabernacle. They built the tabernacle. There was an incident of rebellion with the golden calf. He disciplined them, but yet didn't take his promise away from them completely. Moses interceded, and he remained with them. Um, he, he ordered them into camps, into military camps under their standards, under their banners, which is something that as a nation of slaves they would not have known for 400 years. And he took a census, a military census, of their fighting forces, their alifs, their thousands, so to speak. And then they celebrated their second Passover. And this time it was celebrated in freedom. And that was last week, and then they prepared to set out the last thing he does before they leave, it says, chapter 10, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Make two trumpets of hammered silver and use them for calling the community together and for having the camp set out. When both are sounded, the whole community is to assemble before you at the entrance to the tent of meeting. If 
only one is sounded, the leaders, the heads of the clans of Israel, are to assemble before you. So the trumpets had two different purposes. And most, most scholars say it's likely, based on the trumpets' patterns that they had in Egypt, and these trumpets were most likely the same type, um, these weren't the ram's horn. These weren't the shofar that you see in, in, in later for blowing for different occasions and holidays and things. These are, <clears throat> these are the, the call to orders trumpets. These are the emergency alarms, so to speak. And they were probably two different lengths, probably two different sounds. Uh, and one would be for gather the leaders. Both together would be, hey, it's time to move out, gather the camps. Yeah, they weren't like... Um, like um, Dizzy Gillespie type trumpets, right? These would have been the long, you know, like the Roman emperors when they go, da, 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 and they let the games begin, those kind of trumpets. It was, it, it was, these were not biblical Miles Davis type trumpets. <laughs> so he said, uh, when a trumpet blast is sounded, the tribes camping on the east are to set out. At the sounding of a second blast, the camps on the south are to set out. The blast will be the signal for setting out. To gather the assembly, blow the trumpets, but not with the same signal. So they were multiple signals that they could use. And these were loud piercing, because these were metal. These weren't the ram's horn. So they had a vibration and a resonance that was much sharper than the other. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to blow the trumpets. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you and the generations to come. When you go into battle in your own land against an enemy who is oppressing you, sound a blast on the trumpets. Then you will be remembered by the Lord your God and rescued from your enemies. Also at your times of rejoicing, your appointed feasts and new moon festivals, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. They will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. These trumpets, when Israel was, gets into the land, these trumpets would be the way that they would signal when they were attacked. Not when they march out to attack, but when they were attacked. Now, there's a question of, well, why would they need to blow trumpets if they're being attacked for God to remember? Is it like they needed to get God's attention? Did he forget? We've seen what God remembered. To remember means to look back upon an event and act in light of those promises. God remembered his promise to Abraham, and he came down and delivered his people from Egypt. So now, in the future, he's saying, I, when you do this, I will remember all of this in the sense that I'm, this is the plan. It will call to mind, to God's mind, yeah, but mainly to the people's mind, who they are. These are the Exodus trumpets. These are the victory trumpets of us coming out of Egypt. This is our identity. So everything in Israel's future is to be rooted and grounded in the events of Israel's formation, which is the Exodus. And God's saying, call to me with these trumpets, these same trumpets that are marching you out now in, in, in victory and in celebration, not a piercing calamity alarm. These are celebration notes. These are celebration instruments. So there's, there's a cool image there. Even, even in the midst of the dire consequences of living in an ancient warfare society, even when things look bleak, blow the things that you blow when there's celebration and God acts. So even in calamity, God acts upon the praises of his people. And that's a, that, that plays out through the rest of scripture. When, when 
God's people call to him in prayer. What does Paul do when he's in jail? He sings worship songs. He praises God. What does the psalmist do when he's at his darkest and his deepest in depression and misery? He praises God. So even in the darkness, even in the trouble, there's a note of praise. In this case, literally, there's a note of praise, and God promises to act on that. So that in itself speaks volumes to his promise, his covenant promise. Now, it's a covenant promise. So you can't neglect the covenant and expect to receive the benefits of like this. Israel will learn that lesson through the Babylonians much later in their history. But in, within the covenant setting, this is what God promises now, he goes on, verse 11, here it is. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of testimony. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai, traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. So the cloud lifts, the trumpets are blown, people set out. whole year over a year has been leading up to this event. This is the first time they march out as God's triumphant conquering army rather than the rabble of slaves that he brought out of Egypt. So, the divisions of the camp of Judah went first under their standard. Nashan, son of Amminadab, was in command. Nethanel, son of Zuar, was over the division of the tribe of Issachar, and Eliab, son of Helen, was over the division of the tribe of Zebulun. Then the tabernacle was taken down, and the Gershonites and the Merorites who carried it set out. So first, the groups on the east, they set out. Then the tabernacle, the curtains, the, the outer implements taken down by the two subunits of the tribe of Levite, follows behind them. Then after that, the divisions of the camp of Reuben went next under their standard. Elizur, son of Shedeor, was in command. Shalumiel, son of Zerushadai, was over the division of the tribe of Simeon. And Eliasaph, son of Duo, was over the division of the tribe of Gad. Then, so the next tribe sets out, then the Kohathites set out, carrying the holy things. The tabernacle was to be set up before they arrived. So even there's some logistics. When they get to the next place, the people who are going to set the structure, they go first. So by the time that the holy things, the actual implements, the menorah and the lampstand, all that kind of stuff, uh, bread of the presence, the table, when they get there, the tabernacle has been erected. And so they can move God right in. And so that, again, the tabernacle goes with them in their midst. The divisions of the camp of Ephraim went out under, next under their standard. Elishama, son of Amahud, was in command. Gamaliel, son of Pedazur, was over the division of the tribe of Manasseh. And Abidan, son of Gideoni, was over the division of the tribe of Benjamin. Finally, as the rear guard for all the units, the divisions of the camp of Dan set out under their standard. Ahiazer, son of Amishadai, was in command. Hagiel, son of Achron, was over the division of the tribe of Asher. And Ahira, son of Anon, was over the division of the tribe of Naphtali. This was the order of the march for the Israelite divisions as they set out. That notion this is military language. Their standards, their divisions, their rear guard. You have to keep that in mind. They are an army now. They have been transformed into a marching army, which would speak tremendously to people who had been literally living, enslaved, and oppressed by a foreign nation with the most powerful army in the world at the time. Now they have been transformed into God's army, leading them into Canaan. 
So they end up at the, at the wilderness of Paran. So the wilderness of Sinai, somewhere in northwest Arabia, uh, wilderness of Paran, somewhere between Canaan, which would be up here, Egypt would be down here. So somewhere between Canaan and Midian is where they end up in this area. Um, the average travel time for a caravan in the ancient world, they say, was about 15 miles a day, give or take. So in this case, we read, um, well, we'll come to that in a minute. They go about three days' journey, so maybe about 45, 50 miles from where they are in Sinai. Now Moses, this is the next part, verse 29. Now Moses said to Hobab, son of Ruel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. Literally, it says, come with us and we will do you good, for the Lord has promised to do us good. There's a note here. Uh, it should be a note here. NIV translates it, says, uh, Hobab, son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. This same word, Hotan, uh, next, the next time, it's, or, or another time this person is talked about in Judges 4, verse 11, it says, um, Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law. I don't know why NIV translates it father-in-law here and brother-in-law in Judges chapter 4, verse 11, but they do for some reason, and it's probably not right. Uh, it's probably his brother-in-law. His father-in-law was Jethro, whose name was also Ruel, or Ruel may even be a title for people among the Midianites. And so among the Midianites, you may have the clan of Ruel, and then that would be headed by Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law, gave him his daughters of Florida to be married. And Moses lived for 40 years before he went to Egypt. All this is in Exodus, so go back and check the video for that if you weren't here with us two and a half years ago. But uh, at this point, this guy, Hobab, he's mentioned for the first time. Don't really know much about him, but it's very much more likely that he's Moses' brother-in-law or one of his relative in-laws than his father-in-law. There's some discussion about that in the commentaries, and you can check it out for yourself. But just notice that he's called his brother-in-law in Judges chapter 4, verse 11. And that's most likely what he is. So again, place where the NIV, is this going to send you to hell if you read the NIV and it's wrong? No, but in this case, probably not the right translation. Um, regardless, though, he says to him, hey, come with us. Come with us and, and, and uh, basically come with us and we will treat you well. Hobab answered, verse 30, no, I'll not go. I'm going back to my own land and my own people. You know, like Israel's about to set out. Hobab is going to go back to where Jethro went after he and Moses talked for a while back in Exodus. Back to his land, back to the people. And Moses said, please do not leave us. You know where we should camp in the desert and you can be our eyes. If you come with us, we will share with you whatever good the Lord gives us. So they set out from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day, and they set out from camp. Whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May, and NIV says your foes, but literally it says, May the ones hating you flee before you. It's called the battle cry of Moses. Whenever it came to rest, when the cloud came to rest in a spot, Moses it says, Return, O Lord, to the countless elephs of Israel. Some say countless thousands or countless divisions or myriad of divisions. The word just means just the countless horses, divisions, elephs. So this is how it's 
stated. They set out. They go. Here's the question. They're being led by cloud, God, the glory cloud itself. Why do they need Hobab to lead them? Why does Moses want his brother-in-law, his in-law, to come with them? They've got God. Why does he need this guy? Interestingly, the text never gives his answer. We don't know if Hobab said yes or no until we get to Judges, chapter 4. And then we find out that, yes, he actually did go with them and his people were a part of Israel when they traveled along. But in the text here, scholars look at it two ways. A minority of number scholars will look at this as Moses expressing doubt and, and, and even disobedience by not relying on God as the guide, but getting a Midianite, a Gentile, to help guide them. But the majority of scholars of Numbers, when they look at this, they see something that this contrasts very neatly with the previous chapter, where uh, the cloud is what guides them above the tabernacle. And then in this chapter, this Midianite is seen as coming and guiding them as well. So logistically, what would likely have happened, again, you can't prove all of this, but it most likely given the text, is it's hard to follow a cloud in terms of when you get to a trail and where it parts and there's a, you know, they're both going that way, but this one looks steep and rocky, this one looks high and a little shady, and you don't know, what, how do I get, the cloud's over the mountain, the cloud's going that way, the cloud's flying, you're not, you're walking. So how do you get to those individual places, how do you, how do you navigate the space, you know where you're going, you know where the destination is, you've got the goal in sight, but you still got to get there. You still got to walk, and you've got these thousands of people with you, with their animals and their children and their belongings. You've got to get there. So, having someone who's from that land, who knows where the water spots are, who knows where the grazing spots are, who knows where the trails and the roads and the paths are, would be of tremendous help. Even as God is the one leading the way. And so, this, a number of commentators look at this and they see something in this that works well with what we know about God. God is the ultimate guide. He is the one who directs the goal and the overall, this is the way you should walk. But he allows some leeway and some freedom in your daily steps. So how you get there, there can be different ways of getting to that goal. So here, having the, having the humility to ask a person who's an expert is a case of applying worldly wisdom, common grace knowledge, in pursuit of a godly goal. They don't, they don't conflict. Knowing and following God does not conflict with having competent experts and guides in your life. So some people put those two, they pit them against each other. Oh, God's promised me this, so I don't want to hear anything from anybody else. God's promised me healing, so I don't need any of these doctors. Right? God's promised me guidance, so I don't need any financial experts telling me how to best use my money in the short term. God's promised me this and I'm headed that way. Right? There's all of these types. You know, God's promised me whatever, a nice house, a good home. I don't need a plumber to tell me what to do with my pipes and his worldly plumbing wisdom. No, you do. We do. There are times when we need worldly wisdom because God doesn't lead us all psychically. He has the goal and we have the goal. But then there will be times when we need some hobobs in our life. We need some people who know the lay of the land. We need some people who understand the nuances of things that we don't. It's a sign of humility. And it doesn't mean you're not relying on God. 
Moses and Israel, it's not like they were following Hobab instead of the cloud, instead of Yahweh. They were implementing, they were using, they were inviting him to help them better follow God and his guidance through the desert. And God never rebukes them for it. There's no hint at all that this is something wrong, that, that this was a lack of faith or anything like that, I think. Rather, it's a great example of human wisdom and guidance working in unison together with God's divine guidance. So I see a lot of times, you know, people get what they think is a, a, a call from the Lord or a vision from the Lord or a promise from the Lord. And, and typically, depending on where, what church you're in, the more charismatic you are or the less, is, will be how much frequent those things are. You know, some people will, are in the types of churches that God told me to drink Coke today instead of Pepsi. And then the Spirit told me I got to go over to Panera Bread and sit there for two hours and I need to order the focaccia wedge sandwich. And then after, you know, some people are just like that. We've all met those kind of people, you know, every single thing the Lord say in the Lord. And part of it, you're like, I don't think God's saying all that. I think you're, but you don't want to, it's not like they're just, okay, well, you do your thing. But then there's other people who are like, no, God only speaks through Scripture. God only speaks through the Bible. Any word from the Lord is automatically false. It's strange fire. It's any of this kind of stuff. Just stay away from it. Well, you don't want to go that route either. So like in all things, you want that balance. Hearing from God, but using the wisdom that God has given us through common grace. And that's what I see in the Hobob narrative here, is Moses does that. He has enough leadership to know we're going there, we can get there, but between here and there, it's kind of sketchy. It's kind of uncertain. And I'm not an expert here. I need someone who is. Will you come and guide us? It's also a contrast. This is uh, Hobab here is a Midianite. And later, later in Numbers, in the next generation, or rather in, in the next section, uh, it will be a Midianite who leads Israel into rank idolatry and, and their downfall. But here, it's a Midianite who is, again, a Gentile coming into and joining with the people of God in covenant faith and leading them. And we find out later in Judges that that's how Obab and his family entered into the people of Israel. So once again, we see this Jew-Gentile coming together through the covenant. That's a hint and a glimpse that gets blown into full color in the New Testament when the Gentiles have come in by the scores into the people of Israel. But even in the Old Testament, you see it. Even in the Old Testament, you see God is no xenophobe. God is no nationalist. He has his covenant people. But anyone who is willing to enter into relationship with those people and treat them in a way that God desires becomes part of them. And the good that God does to them gets reflected into those people. That's the covenant. That's the benefit of a covenant relationship. We see that here in this section of Israel. So this is where Numbers chapter 10, we finally got underway. We finally journeyed after a year around the mountain. For us, after, what month is it? For three months. We've been three months with Israel as they prepare to set out. Now they're setting out. So things look awesome. They've got the battle cry of Moses. The ark is going before them. They've got a They've got a competent expert guide. They've got divine guidance above that guide. Everything's ready to, to have the happy ending. Everything's ready to be amazing. And then you come to the next chapter. 
And that's a pattern that we'll see throughout numbers. And then you come to the next chapter. So to see what I mean by that, come back next week because we are out of time. Have a great week, everyone.